Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners. Okay, I know you've heard about it, but you might not have any idea what it is. I'm talking about blockchain, people, and it is the biggest, baddest, hottest topic in tech. If you've heard of cryptocurrency or Bitcoin, assuming you don't live under a rock, then blockchain is a technology that powers it. Today, we're talking with Thomas Rush, the head of Platform at Consensus, to talk about social impact use cases for blockchain. Is it the next internet? How will it affect nonprofits in the coming years? Also, what the heck is it? Listen in to learn more. I'll post some helpful articles in the show notes. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, please don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. Finally, please drop me a line if there are any topics or guests that you'd be interested in. Wong at gmail.com. Enjoy. Thomas, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's so exciting. This, I have been looking forward to this for literally weeks. I'm so excited to talk about blockchain. So, Thomas, for the total newbie, what the heck is blockchain? All right. So, blockchain, I like to equate to a pretty foundational technology that does a number of things and that because it accomplishes multiple things at once, it often causes confusion among people because they'll get different explanations depending on the lens at which you look it through. But at its most basic level, it's a shared ledger. Essentially, you can think of a big shared spreadsheet or if you're familiar with Google Sheets or Google Docs, how you can share those. Very similar concept in that picture a spreadsheet where thousands and thousands of people globally have access to it and they can all write to it, but no one can delete anything, no one can change anything that's been written to it, etc. So now what you're able to do is have this very large shared record of X, record of transactions or record of how things are moving around the world. And uh, with that shared record, you're able to, to get a single source of truth across a wide variety of different people. So what would the advantage of having a single source of truth globally be? There's a number of things. One, it's more secure, and this leans a little bit into the the technical side, but it's more secure than most systems out there. So no blockchain to date has ever been hacked or has ever been kind of quote unquote broken into. Or, or And then it's also distributed. So there's not a single point of failure. In most cases, the reasons that let's say the Equifax hack happened is because Everyone knows Equifax has those servers in a certain location and can go after them. With blockchain and with the distributed ledger, because that shared ledger is stored in computers worldwide, if you hack into one computer, there's 49,000 others with the accurate record that are, are still available. And so that one can just be dropped off the network. And so basically, it's more secure. It's distributed, so there's no single point of failure. It's uh, immutable, meaning that you can't change things that have been uh, added to the record in the past. And then the fourth thing, which I won't go deep into, uh, you can also add smart contracts into it, which is another aspect of blockchain. I think a lot of people, the first time they've heard about blockchain had to do with crypto and with Bitcoin. Can you explain in a non-technical way what what the intersection of those two things are? Bitcoin is actually a subset of cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. So Bitcoin is one type of cryptocurrency in the same way that Ethereum or IOTA and these other various cryptocurrencies all are. Uh, So they're all under the category of cryptocurrency. And cryptocurrency is then built on top of 
something called blockchain. So blockchain is the underlying technology. We've been hearing a lot of hype about blockchain being the new internet. Why is that? This is the first time that in human history that people can fairly exchange value over the internet in a peer-to-peer manner. How value is exchanged now is through a third party. Everyone's familiar with this. If I write you a check, we depend on the bank to take the money out of my account and add it to your account. With blockchain or with cryptocurrency, we can directly interact with each other and we can remove that third party. So we're able to remove the, the profit that they take off the top. And additionally, we're able to do it more quickly and efficiently and privately or anonymously if we want to. And so that obviously has some interesting repercussions for large financial institutions and governments that are obviously interested in tracking transactions. Can you say more about the potential for upending these traditional structures? There's an interesting dichotomy there. One is they're investing heavily in blockchain, at least many modern and developed governments are, and certainly the big financial institutions are. Part of it is because there's a more efficient operating system that they can build on blockchain. So instead of having multiple different systems where there's discrepancies between all of their ledgers and their financial systems, they could have one shared financial ledger for their large organization, which would help tremendously and cut down on audit costs and all these other costs that they run into. Governments are doing it for a similar reason. It can help with efficiency, help with removing corruption from some of their systems. So they're investing heavily for those reasons. And you know, even where I work at Consensus, there are some people who consider themselves crypto anarchists and some people who are ex-bankers. So it kind of depends on how you're approaching the use case of blockchain or how you're putting it into action. Large financial institutions are leveraging it and will leverage it in the future. But at the same time, there are smaller groups of people who are trying to build systems that will upend it. Everyone's kind of waiting to see how those two paradigms shake out. Right, because blockchain is a fairly new technology, right? And no one knows who actually created it. Exactly, yeah. Uh, So created um, by Satoshi Nakamoto, which everyone knows. And that was one person or a group of people still unknown. And then it's kind of evolved since then. Bitcoin was around for about uh, six years. And then kind of the second version of blockchain started coming out, mainly with Ethereum. And now others have, have continued to add on to that kind of second layer of, uh, of blockchains with things like Cardano and, and EOS and others. Would it be fair to say that blockchain is more analogous to the way that the internet was originally conceived of working? Oh, uh, yes, actually, that's very astute. Um, and lots of people feel that way. So many people, they, when they speak about blockchain, they're like, this is exactly what the internet was originally meant to be. The first version of it kind of got away from us and is now being held in the hands of a few powerful companies or people. And now, so lots of people refer to that as Web 2. Web 1 was the, the very, very first version of the internet where you could just put something out there on a web page. Mm-hmm. Web 2 is where people could start interacting, Facebook, Airbnb, etc. And now people are referring to Web 3 where you can interact without that third party involved. And so there's a lot of hope that one, we'll get to where the internet was supposed to be. And then there's also a lot of fear that we could just, you know, be going through that same cycle again, where there's a lot of hope, but it ends up in the hands of the big financial institutions. I'm going to change tack a little bit because this is the nonprofit lowdown. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the ways in which we've seen use cases of blockchain in the nonprofit or NGO sector. 
There are a number of really great use cases. I've often kind of jokingly said that blockchain is probably going to get the most adoption in really boring scenarios or really sexy scenarios, and the sexy ones being more of the nonprofit developing world type of uh, use case. So one of the more well-known examples is the UN World Food Program actually used the Ethereum blockchain to deliver resources to 10,000 Syrian refugees in Jordan. They were in a refugee camp. And essentially, I think as a lot of people, particularly in the nonprofit world know, there's a lot of corruption when it comes to donations and large organizations uh, provide aid to ex-government in a developing country. And by the time it gets down onto the ground to the people who need it, you know, 40% of it has somehow magically been siphoned off. So with cryptocurrency, going back to the, the cutting out the middleman point, the World Food Program was testing the Ethereum blockchain because they could take cryptocurrency and essentially deliver it directly to the end user, the refugees, and cut out all of the middlemen where, who would usually be needed to administer those funds. And I can talk about the mechanics of how that happened, but they ended up saving a ton of money and funding that ended up going directly to the refugees and are planning on expanding that program as a result. I think the donation case is really interesting. I'm also wondering if blockchain can be used in conflict zones, for example, where people don't have IDs on them or aren't able to prove who they are based on traditional you know, paper methods of identification. Yeah, that's definitely a use case as well. And there's probably kind of two things baked into what you said. One is actually identity, and then the other is proving some sort of economic history, Mm -hmm. um, the same way that we have credit scores in the Mm -hmm. developed world. Lots of people grew up and they might have had a successful business, family business that's not like on the books, so to speak, but is, is successful in the shop. And then when they're displaced, there's no ability for them to prove that economic history and prove that they could repay a loan to start a new business or any of those other things. You can tie those two together and now you have someone who's displaced who might be able to use a, a biomarker, a iris scan or a fingerprint to prove who they are. And because their identity is recorded on the blockchain, they could be in another country, prove who they are. And then similarly, that identity could be tied to this quote unquote credit score where they could see, all right, this person's started their own business in the past. They ran it for 20 years. They're probably a very eligible recipient of a potential small loan to get them back on their feet. Would it be possible to use blockchain to move assets? For example, in the case of a Syrian refugee, if they had assets in Syria and had to leave, could blockchain be helpful in that? Potentially. It kind of depends on what the assets are. There are a number of people working on digital rights management. uh, And I guess just to clarify, it probably wouldn't be the mechanism used to actually like send the asset. Mm -hmm. uh, But proving ownership of the asset could be possible. Mm-hmm. So, and this gets into what a lot of people are working on, which is tokenizing certain things. So a big one is how do we tokenize traditional securities? And by securities, I mean stocks, bonds, etc. So, you know, those are often tracked either through a, a digital ledger at your local big bank, let's say at Chase Bank, or they're sometimes still on paper and both of those are pretty corruptible, can be lost, can be damaged, etc. So basically what you could do is take that traditional asset, like you were saying, you own one share of, of Apple stock. If you were able to be tokenized, then you could move it around, you could take it with you, it could be tied to that identity, etc. That is actually interesting too, because I'm wondering about 
in this world where our identity and our data are being sold and it feels very violating. Is there a world in which blockchain would help us to better protect our identity and, and own our own data? Yes. And I don't want to sound like it, it's solving everything because we're, we're still a couple of years off from you know this one technology being able to do all of these things. But in theory, that is a, a really great use case. So we actually have a startup at our company. So Consensus is a venture studio where we invest in and, and also establish startups. And one of those startups was working on exactly that, where you could essentially control the ownership of your data and share it with others, but in a privacy-centric way. So the kind of ideal use case is, let's say, for healthcare data, which everyone is very protective of, yet at the same time, healthcare data in mass could be very, very valuable to the world and us being able to run machine learning over it and understand trends in cancer rates or like all those various things that, that are often uh, attempted to be done. But because of our current healthcare system, at least in the US, it's not possible. So going back to your question, that use case could be something like, you're my doctor and I go into a doctor's appointment, can share my full health record with you, but then actually retract it back mm -hmm. and close off your access after 10 minutes goes by. You've been able to look at it. You have what you need. But then I'm not actually sharing that healthcare data with you or with a marketer and all the other people that are that are uh, then out there buying data on the secondary markets. Mm -hmm. Let's get back to the nonprofit thing because I yeah. think that's super interesting. So is there a world in which blockchain would enable people who are not necessarily on the traditional financial fabric to participate in the economy? Yeah, so that, that actually gets kind of back to the subject I mentioned around the economic history. I think one issue that people are running into is this idea that it's a perfect fit for a population like that, but at the same time, the challenge I think is a long-standing challenge, which is this like last mile issue. Mm -hmm. So it's great to think that Syrian refugee could have an economic history tied to the blockchain, all this fancy stuff, except on a normal day-to-day -day basis, that person probably doesn't understand how to operate a public-private key, what blockchain is, do they have an iris scanner at home? Most mm -hmm. likely not. Like All these things that luckily the UN World Food Program in that example were able to provide and, and kind of build out that, that supply chain for the whole system to work. There's this tension there between it's the perfect fit, except for that last mile issue of technology being on the ground. Do you have cell phone or internet service? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the biggest kind of one of the, the problems that needs to be worked out. Interesting. Are there any other use cases that you can share with us? I, you brought up identity. That's a good one. So really just having these attestations. Uh, it's a fancy word for saying an attestation is similar to a college degree, right? You're a college attests that you went to school there and that you have a degree. And as the world moves faster and further away from kind of these traditional attestations, right, there's lots of skills you can learn. You can take a course online and go get a little badge on your LinkedIn. That's happening across the world. And so if you had a expert that attested to someone who was brand new to the workforce or maybe was displaced, like we've been saying, using the refugee as an example, and they could quickly pass a test showing that they have expertise in a field of mechanics, even though they're not in their, their home country. Now you have this identity piece where you can see 
that they have certain skills and that they could be hired for a certain job. Again, helping with the economic growth of, of an individual or of a community. Are there any that are domestic related? Yes. So a very straightforward one is also just supply chain. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is kind of the more things that people don't usually talk about on the weekends. So when you eat tuna, when you order your sushi, knowing actually where your tuna comes from Mm -hmm. is a big issue. And this applies to food. It applies to clothing. It applies to a lot of things in terms of ethical sourcing of goods, which is a you know bigger and bigger deal. Say more about this. I'm actually super fascinated about kind of supply chains and ethics. And and I think particularly amongst younger generations, they're much more conscientious about how they're spending their money and where they're spending their money. So I'd be curious to know about this. The way I've seen it play out is people typically need to depend on these third-party kind of labels that are stuck to goods. So whether it's organic or... Fair trade. Exactly. Right. And those are great. And those organizations are obviously serving that purpose really well. Uh, but at the end of the day, you don't actually know much about where your your goods are actually coming from. Mm-hmm. So either they're, they're, they could be labeled properly and be organic, but it's tough to know if other things have gotten into that supply chain. And there are many other goods that are not organic, right? You don't have an organic iPhone, and we're all aware that there's mining most likely going on in the cobalt mines where they're using children for the labor and all these terrible things. So... One use case for blockchain is uh, this supply chain issue where, going back to that very first example I gave of a shared ledger, when something's mined, let's say, uh, the fact that it has been mined and a photo of it and different attributes could be added to the shared ledger, Mm -hmm. and then you're able to track that good or that material through the supply chain all the way to your, your very own home or device or your store. And... Through that, you're getting greater transparency all the way back to its original source versus now you're pretty much limited to up to the manufacturer and mm-hmm. you can't go further back than that. That's so interesting because it actually starts to make me think about donations and the fact that when I give a donation to a nonprofit or a charity, all I have is their assurance that my money is going to where I say that I want it to go or that it's benefiting the you know, the people that I want to help. And so I'm wondering... Would that be a potential use case for blockchain to be able for donors to have greater transparency into the impact of their donation? Yeah, absolutely. So there's actually an, an organization called Alice. Uh, their website's alice.si, and they're working on exactly that. So basically, essentially, they're trying to build a platform that brings transparency to their social funding model. Mm-hmm. When you donate, you can actually track that money precisely down to the penny mm. in terms of where it goes. And this, this gets a little bit into to blockchain. I'm not sure exactly how Alice is building their platform, but when I send you a transaction, it goes to this this big, long address. It's mm-hmm. kind of like an email address. Uh, it's used, you know, you use it as an identifier for yourself. And the one issue there, um, which is it's both an issue and a, a benefit, is that it's a huge, long string of numbers and letters. So learning exactly what's behind that address can be a challenge if you're trying to track cryptocurrency across time mm-hmm. um, and across transactions. But to your point, as, as long as if you were on a, a platform, you know, such as Alice, there's a few others out there as well. Uh, you could track exactly where your cryptocurrency goes, make sure that it's not going, that it's not just sitting there mm-hmm. or that it's not going to, to someone corrupt or being used elsewhere. For example, if you saw it being spent 
at the Gap store, you would be able to flag that to the organization or to the IRS or whoever. That's so interesting. And it actually makes me think about a lot of peer-to-peer funding models like Kickstarter or Kiva, where people are directly donating to recipients out or you know, within country or out of country. But that is a, actually I recently donated to Kiva to this woman uh, in Ecuador who wants to start a food market. Mm-hmm. Now, I trust that Kiva will make sure that the money gets to her and I trust that she'll use it for the intended purpose. But frankly, I have no real way of knowing if that's actually what's being used. So, yeah. But that's actually interesting. So in a world where if I sent crypto to someone, say, in Ecuador, trying to start a food market, how is she then able to convert that that crypto into actual money that she can use to purchase the stuff that she needs? So there's probably two to three ways, depending on how you slice it. One is more and more retailers and and markets are beginning to accept crypto. So Mm -hmm. there is potential for her to actually just spend it right in its current form. The other is... And this is probably a little bit beyond most people, but being able to sell it on a, a market. So similar to how you can buy and sell stocks, she could sell the cryptocurrency on an open market on her mm-hmm. computer and then receive her, her local currency in exchange. And then there, there's a third model that's similar, but much more analog, which is there's organizations that actually do kind of quote unquote local Bitcoin or local mm-hmm. cryptocurrency. And you can meet people in person. You send them the crypto and they just hand you the cash. And it, and very similarly, there's there's ATMs that do do similar oh, mechanisms really as well. Yeah. Uh, gosh, I have so many questions, <laughs> but we only have so much time. The other thing about blockchain, I, again, my understanding of it is very basic, but uh, I've come to understand that there are ways in which you can release funds when certain conditions are met. Is that something that's being used in the nonprofit space? So, for example, if I'm giving money for a particular project, but I need X, Y, and Z conditions to be met before I release the funds. I don't have any concrete examples, but I do know that's that's a use case, and that goes back to what I mentioned. Like that's essentially what a smart contract is. Mm-hmm. One, it's one use of a smart contract, and basically what you're able to do, precisely like you said, is you can create some sort of logic. You know, typically it's an if-then statement. So mm-hmm. like, if the, the 49ers win, I'll send you $20 because right. we have that bet. And, and we wait until the, the official score is in and it's automatically dispersed to you. And so there are some nonprofits using that. I know there was a project and it, it didn't quite get off the ground, but they were actually using that in terms of oil cleanup mm. in Nigeria. So as lots of people know, Nigeria is the home of a ton of natural resources, but a lot of that is extracted without the local communities receiving any benefit of it. And so what they were planning on doing was instead of focusing purely on the the corruption that's embedded in that system, which is very deep and very difficult to address, they were trying to hire the local communities for the cleanups because those cleanups are required by uh, national law of the the oil companies are required to clean up the the spills and, and any kind of environmental issues that come up as a result of their work there. And so it was one kind of way of getting some of the the funding back into the local communities. And the idea, because again, that can be corrupt, the idea was that they were going to put that funding in escrow until there was proof that the oil had been cleaned up by certain people. Mm. And so that could be, that same model doesn't have to be in Nigeria either. It could be the local environmental group working in the bayou. 
used to live in New Orleans. So. <laughs> I like that you said the, the, yeah. bay, the bayous of Nigeria. Exactly. Yeah. The, the bayous of New York City don't exactly exist, but, yeah. um, but that's what came to mind. Yeah. For the average nonprofit here in New York City, is blockchain a technology that they should be thinking about, or is it a couple years away? Like, I would say definitely be thinking about it. There, it's great to stay kind of ahead of that curve in terms of understanding what is coming down the line and how you could leverage it. I would say those initial use cases are probably going to be the best way for a nonprofit to be engaged would be through a partner. So maybe they work with Alice or they work with the blockchain startup that's working on environmental cleanups mm-hmm. uh, versus trying to build something themselves. The other big caveat I would say, and we do this all the time when, when looking at potential investments, is don't have a solution that's looking for a problem. So just knowing about blockchain as a leader of a nonprofit doesn't mean, in my opinion, that you should go out and try to find a problem that mm-hmm. matches Instead, understand your problem really well and see if blockchain is that actual solution that would that would solve it for you. Because there are there are a number of kind of issues that we haven't worked through just as a large blockchain ecosystem uh, that have yet to be solved that'll make it easier for the average person to engage and use it. I like to reference Squarespace, honestly, in this scenario. We don't quite have the, the Squarespace of blockchain yet, mm-hmm. where now it's super easy to create a website. Mm-hmm. We don't have that where it's super easy to create your own cryptocurrency app where a nonprofit could quickly spin one up and deploy yeah. it to their users. Interesting. So if people wanted to start to understand blockchain and learn about the space, what, where would they go? What would they do? What would they read? Yeah. And we can include all of these in the show notes. So Great. Uh, one really great resource is Light Paper, L-I-T-E Paper. Mm-hmm. And uh Full disclosure, it's one of our partners, one of our, our startups, and uh, they have like a, just a ton of educational resources, and it's built for exactly that, kind of this escalating complexity of blockchain, so you can start at the super fundamental level and mm-hmm. then work your way up to learning about the deepest, darkest secrets of cryptography. Yeah. Actually, one thing I forgot to ask you, how did you get started in blockchain? Kind of exactly that. I was doing a bunch of research, uh, so I was living up here in New York. And this is 2016, just kind of discovered it. I have a background in social entrepreneurship. So co-founded a, an incubator focused on social impact projects, was constantly trying to rework the economics of, of how value is captured and created and exchanged. And that incubator was the closest I'd ever gotten, which was a pretty straightforward model, right? Mm-hmm. Rent some office space to people doing great work. And then over the the following couple of years leading up to 2016, I started hearing more and more about blockchain, went deep into a rabbit hole of research, uh, actually while I was back visiting New Orleans. And then coming back to New York was was just attending meetups and such, Mm -hmm. Uh, kept running in the same people. It was a much smaller community then. Got it. And uh, luckily ended up at Consensus. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for this. This is a lot of information today, guess. I'm sure for a lot of my listeners, this will be food for thought um, and hopefully we can start to really leverage the power of blockchain in the nonprofit space. Yeah, this is great. Thank you. Thank you.